0: I... I can't do this. Cherie Curry felt alone. It was just her and a drop microphone in a closet of a room. What's the problem, Cherie? I'm just... I'm nervous, Kim. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll try again. Kim Fowley left the recording booth where he was observing her to find the sound engineer. Rewire the room, he told the engineer. Take out the drop mic and give her one she can hold. One that she can move around with like the rock and roll animal she is. Wouldn't that affect the sound quality? Who gives a shit? All Cherie had to do was project rock and roll authority. Confidence makes everything sound better. She looked around the room. No decorations, no color... Just a heap of wires and recording equipment. The runaways were at Fidelity Records in Sound City, California, just outside LA. Somewhere between B-movie lots and family-owned Mexican restaurants. They were recording in Studio B, Studio B being the polite name from Fidelity's storage room that they used as a discount recording booth. Cherie clutched her new microphone... This feels weird. It's uh, it's it this isn't like being on stage at all. Fowley flipped a switch. The room in black.
1: There. Now you can imagine yourself on stage.
0: Cherie took a deep breath. It was her first time in a recording studio, the first time most of the band had been in a studio. Fowley had been leaning into them all day, his usual comments about their amateur playing coupled with platitudes like, time is money. Most songs were being recorded in three takes or less. Three takes was supposed to be enough for Cherie to capture the magic of the Runaways' live shows with just her voice. Sitting in the dark, a new feeling crept over her. Was it desperation? Fear? Guilt? Affection? Seeing Fowley turn from a drill sergeant to a person who actually maybe sort of semi-cared about her gave her a boost. Suddenly, she wanted to please him, and badly. Her palms began to sweat as she imagined looking into a rapt audience. Maybe an arena of thousands of screaming kids exactly like her. But they weren't actually like her because she was the one on stage, the one with the mic, the one in the spotlight. She was special. This record was going to be proof of how truly special she was. When the music track began playing through her headphones, she felt herself transforming. The Cherie thing had arrived. strut and snarl through Cherry Bomb with all the gusto of a rock and roll. Moment. I'm the fox been paid for. Hello, Daddy.
1: Hello, Mom! Cherry bomb. Hello, world! I'm your boy girl! I'm itch-bombing.
0: And when it was all over. It was back to darkness. No more audience, no more music, just silence. Such quiet, you could almost hear the dust settling. Well, how was that? Her heart felt like it was waiting for permission to beat.
1: Good job, Cherie. Now do it again.
0: Being young musicians, The Runaway's first record was a big learning experience. For starters, they learned that an album could be recorded and mixed in just a few weeks. Later, Fowley would insist this was a creative choice, that he was trying to make a record as raw and fumbling as the teenagers playing on it. But of course, as we've already discussed, Fowley has always made records as quickly and cheaply as possible. In fact, that's practically a foully patent. And as we'll see, he wasn't very committed to the creative integrity of the band, because not only did he bring in a ringer to play on the record, but he was also still auditioning new members while recording it. I'm Miko Caporell, and you're listening to Bad Reputation, a women's rock history podcast. This is the fourth episode in our ongoing series, The Runaway Runaways. And today, we're meeting the woman Fally brought in while the Runaways were recording. A woman who goes by the name Anne Boleyn. You don't know. out of her Chevy cattle truck and into the afternoon sunlight Anne thought she had arrived really arrived not just in LA but at a landmark moment it was the spring of 1976 and the 17 year old had just completed an 1100 mile journey to Hollywood the runaways fame hadn't reached her sleepy hometown of Centralia Washington so all she knew was she was there trying out for an all-girl band, but she sensed this was a life-altering moment. Centralia was a small logging community. If you made it out, it's because you were from a rich family, or you became an athlete or an entertainer. Anne's family wasn't rich, and she liked music a lot more than sports, so it seemed like a no-brainer. Anne had to be a musician. As a tween, she picked strawberries to save up for her first keyboard, which she saw as the difference between a good band and a great one. By the time she took her first trip to LA, she'd been playing in bands for four years. That afternoon, she surveyed her future from a Hollywood parking lot. All her hard work was about to pay off. Auditioning for The Runaways wasn't Anne's first big break, or at least, not her first chance at one. Over the years, Anne had sat back and watched as her old friend, Tommy Bolin, had gone from nobody with a guitar to deep purple megastar. A few years earlier, Bolin had invited her to join him on a different musical project. But Anne's parents put their foot down. Maybe one in a million people became rock stars. So how could they let their daughter gamble her future on some pipe dream? No way, she wasn't playing with Tommy Bolin. High school diploma first, dreams later. Of course, Bolin's music career took off seemingly overnight, and that made Anne feel robbed. That could have been her. That should have been her. So when Fowley called her late one evening to invite her to audition for a band he was putting together, this felt like a second chance. Anne had played in a lot of bands, but the runaway seemed different. Bigger. More definite than the group Bolin had invited her to. Not only had Anne gotten good enough to land on a Hollywood producer's radar, but she was trying out for a band that already had a record deal. This was it. Her parents weren't getting a say. She'd run away if she had to, because there was no way she was missing this. Even a warning about Fowley couldn't deter her. Before her trip to LA, Bolin had told her to watch out for Fowley. Nothing specific, just be careful. He's not a good guy. Not a good guy? What did that even mean anyway? Anne had been playing in bands with older men in bars and clubs for years, so she was pretty used to creeps and masculine bravado. And Anne was tough. It was one of the things she liked most about herself. In fact, after Title IX passed in 1972, she braved her way to becoming the first female distance runner at her high school despite people's insults and ridicule. She was too focused and driven to let naysayers drag her down. Missing out on a chance to be a big musician, that seems so much scarier than whatever bullshit Fowley could bring to the table. On the day of her audition, Anne pulled into the Mayfair Market parking lot on Santa Monica Boulevard. She called Fowley from a payphone to meet up. When he arrived, one of the first things she noticed were his arms. They were so long they hung out of his jacket sleeves like hams on strings. In person, he talked fast and he leaned over her a lot, peppered his sentences with swear words and terms like dog cunt. Off the bat, he asked if she was gay. He was abrupt and knowingly rude, almost like he was trying to push buttons, but she wasn't sure which ones. The next day, she met up with Fowley at the recording studio in Sound City. Even though she was young, Anne had a lot of music experience. She hadn't cut a record before, but she was pretty sure it was supposed to be different than whatever was happening at Fidelity. For starters, the studio looked more like a storage closet than a recording booth.
1: I, I walked in there, and they were playing some of the tracks back, and uh, I sat down and jammed and played some acoustic piano there. That was, there was no you know, nothing really set up. It was just kind of odd because there weren't really any band members around. And Kim Fowley said, you know, the engineer just kind of, um, i kind of fatigued and kind of stress. Why don't you go and take care of him? And I'm like, take care of him? What do you mean? He, he goes, you know what I mean? Like, you know, to go take care of him. And I was like, I just pretended like I was stupid, you know, like I didn't have no idea what, what, what he meant.
0: In some interviews, Anne has even speculated that the piano track credited to Cherie Curry on American Nights is actually hers. This did not come up when we talked. What did come up was Fowley's insistence that she play bass.
1: And then he goes, "Yeah, we're you know we're really looking for a bass player." And it's like, "You know, I'm a, really a better keyboard player than I'm a bass player." Uh, usually, people you know want me to do keyboards. It's like I'm barely adequate in bass. Kim said, "Oh, don't worry about it because we've got this guy, named Nigel."
0: The guy was Nigel Harrison. Three years later, Harrison would cement himself in rock history as the bassist for Blondie. But in 1976, he was primarily a musician for hire. And Fowley had hired him to play bass under Jackie Fox's name for The Runaway's debut. Since Jackie had come to the band as a guitar player, she was still learning the bass, which, despite being guitar-shaped, is more like drums in what it adds to a song. Which is to say... Playing bass is a very different skill. According to Cherie, Jackie didn't even know about the switch. In Cherie's memoir, she says Jackie found out when she arrived at Fidelity, and Harrison introduced himself as the bassist. It's probably safe to say that if she didn't know about Harrison, she certainly didn't know Fowley was still considering other bassists either. Fowley had a habit of sharing information selectively, or not at all, so it's possible no one knew. This kind of dynamic with his young charges made for a certain kind of chaos that only he could control. Anne didn't know any of this, though. But she didn't need to. Her intuition told her everything. At one point, Fowley took Anne back to his Bronson Avenue apartment. He led the way with a series of boasts celebrities he knew, outrageous things he'd convinced Runaway's members to do, things like that. He even bragged about collaborating with downstairs neighbor, Mars Bonfire. For those not familiar, Mars Bonfire, also known as Dennis Edmonton, wrote Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild. I guess dropping Bonfire's name was supposed to start a bonfire in Anne's pants because this was a casual segue to whipping out his penis,
1: and I'm like, yeah, I mean, Kim Fowley was, was not um, appealing at all to me. You know, it was just gross. And I'm thinking, you know, as, as a young person I'm coming to Hollywood, if I going to have any like wild affairs with somebody who's going to be like, you know, not not this guy?
0: Now, I have no proof that Fowley did this. The only other person who would know is Fowley who's dead. But I'm including this anecdote for reasons beyond the sheer drama of it. Many of the facts I checked following my interview with Anne proved true. By my best estimate, she is as reliable as anyone recalling things that happened over 40 years ago. Plus, her account of Fowley's treatment is similar to many stories shared about him, including those in Jason Cherkis' Huffington Post article that I mentioned last episode. Except... I've found interviews with Anne saying similar things about Fowley as far back as the mid-90s. As I've touched on before, the backlash for being open about these kinds of experiences can be enormous. Especially when you're a woman looking for opportunities in an industry controlled by men. Because in saying you've been treated inappropriately by a man, even if you don't go into the details... You don't just risk that man retaliating against you. You also risk being seen as a liability by men who behave similarly and now know you won't stand for it. Or by men who think you're making this up and you'll make this up about them. Or women who need these men's professional approval and fear your reputation will rub off on them. So, really, there's little incentive for Anne to be making this up and to stick to this story for over 20 years. And I call attention to this as an example of how long these sorts of rumors about Fowley were out there, in plain sight, without any obvious consequences for Fowley.
1: I remember I ran into Lita Ford years later on an airplane one time coming back from England, and Lita always just said, The way to handle Kim Fowley is just tell him to fuck off. (laughs) And he'll leave you alone. He's not interested in the the older, you know, the girls. He wants the the young ones. Just tell him to fuck off. But uh, it wasn't for me.
0: And I also bring this up to put Fowley in perspective. It's not that people didn't understand Fowley as some sort of problem. But so many men were problems at the time that Fowley was just one along a very vast spectrum
1: Kim came from an era in the 70s where anything went. And the more outrageous he could be, the cooler it was in many people's eyes.
0: And he even gave some unexpected advice to Anne.
1: Kim said, there's a guy named Phil Spector, and he hangs out down at the Guitar Center sometimes and and likes to hit on females that come in. And
2: he
1: goes, if you run into that guy, Stay away. He doesn't have a sense of humor at all. He's not a good guy. That was—I i always thought that was weird for Kim Fowley to be warning me about full spectrum. But even back then, apparently, that uh, he was known to be scarier than Kim Fowley.
0: In the end, Anne's parents got their wish. The teen musician was all too happy to turn down Fowley, head back to Washington, and finish high school. Over the handful of years she'd been playing in bars and clubs, no one had treated her the way Fowley had. And while she wasn't totally sure where her music career was going now, she felt confident it wasn't going where she wanted with Fowley. It's worth noting she didn't write him off completely, though. Little did she know, he would have more of a lasting impact than she'd expect. Anne spent another three years in Centralia before returning to Los Angeles. It was 1979 and she'd just gotten her FCC license because she heard K-Rock was looking for DJs. If you recall from episode two, K-Rock was the station Rodney Bingenheimer worked for. She still had her eye on being a professional musician, but taking a radio job was a good way to get back to the city and stay connected to music. When Anne was a DJ, she did a metal show from midnight to 6am. It was the kind of thing the rainbow bar and grill would play while closing down. Anne spun favorites like Judas Priest and Rush. At the time, this was the kind of stuff you'd have to know someone to hear. It was kind of wild by 70s standards. The studio's morning weatherman used to joke the music was so fast and wild, it made him drive reckless. And that is how her show got its nickname, speed metal hell, which is one of the earliest known instances of the term speed metal. For a late night radio show, Anne had a pretty decent following, but she didn't care. Playing other people's music on the radio for faceless listeners paled to playing her own music on stage in front of a live audience. So she quit the radio show and took odd jobs. She was trying to stay in LA while having a flexible schedule for performing. So Ann did everything from bikini dancing to sales. She even did telemarketing for a printer toner company.
1: Matter of fact, the guy that sat next door to me was Nikki Six. It was funny, because Nikki would come in with the same hair and makeup that he, I'd seen him the night before at the rainbow, because so we started at like 6 a.m. Come
0: 1980, Anne was living with a boyfriend who rented a mansion in Tahunga, California. A large, decaying Tudor previously occupied by a murderous biker gang. Summer heat released the smell of rotting flesh that clung to the walls. To this day, Anne swears the place was haunted. When her boyfriend moved to Canada for business, she inherited the lease. A cheap, giant house that no one cared about the condition of in the middle of nowhere. What metal musician would want to play there? As it turns out, a lot. A lot of people didn't want to play with Anne. As a teen in Washington, finding bandmates had been pretty easy. While she didn't know any female musicians, a lot of men in Centralia were trying to be professional musicians. They respected Anne for her enthusiasm and seriousness. She had a lot of opportunities there. Now in L.A., she felt lucky just finding session work. Men didn't want to be in a band with her because it meant she'd eventually have to come on tour, which would make her privy to the things men did on tour. Drugs, groupies, infidelities, partying, stuff they assumed women would be nags or downers about. So if men jammed with Anne, it was just to use her house for rehearsals. For a long time, the closest Anne got to a serious band was a short-lived iteration of a group called Beowulf. After about a year, the group fell apart and felt everyone had different priorities. There were a lot of drugs and infighting. The last straw was a defiant declaration from the drummer. I'm done with being in bands with chicks. I'm gonna go be in rap. By 1983, Anne was frustrated and restless. All she wanted to do was play. So she approached Ray Shank, a guitarist who had played with Beowulf. And she said, Hey, let's do a cover band just for kicks. Singing was supposed to be temporary and never wanted to be a front person. Sure, she didn't hate being a stand-in. It was actually really fun to switch things up. But her voice was like a low, warbling rasp. No one sang like this. She was a very serious keyboard player, and this was not a serious way to sing. If she let people hear this, it might ruin her credibility as an artist. Except her and Ray's little musical exercise was starting to get more serious. In fact, they were branching out beyond covers, they even had a name, Hellion. But they still didn't have a singer. Now. Here's where I pause and tell you Anne Boleyn is a stage name. Anne asked me not to share her legal name, so if you're really interested, you can do some digging. But I'm telling you this now because her stage persona was born with Hellion. by Anne's own admission, the idea to adopt a persona came from Fowley. This is what happened. Not long after Anne's Runaways audition, Fowley reached out to her again.
1: I'm putting together a new band, an act called Venus and the Razorblades. I want you to come play keyboards for it, and I want you to go by Era
0: Sky. The name Era Sky sounded dumb. And teaming up with Fowley seemed even dumber. But that idea stuck with her, that she could have a real life and a stage life, save parts of herself for the people who really knew her, sacrifice a constructed version of herself the public. There would be Serious Musician Anne, who played keyboards. And then there would be Anne Boleyn, seductive, spooky, black metal witch. The name Anne Boleyn was carefully chosen. By 1982, the idea of the witch loomed large in rock and roll, and by the late 70s, texts such as Spiral Dance were linking feminism and witchcraft to be a witch was to reject the role as a submissive, doting woman. It was to be a self-actualized and assertive woman manifesting her own destiny. And Anne, ever the history lover, was familiar with the lore that surrounded Henry VIII's late wife. But if you're not, here's how writer Hilary Mantle describes her in The Guardian.
2: Anne Boleyn is one of the most controversial women in English history. We argue over her, we pity and admire and revile her. We reinvent her in every generation. She takes on the color of our fantasies and is shaped by our preoccupations. Witch, bitch, feminist, sexual temptress, cold opportunist, She is a real woman who has acquired an archetypal status and force, and one who patrols the nightmares of good wives. She is the guilt-free predator, the man-stealer, the woman who sets out her sexual wares and extorts a fantastic price. She is also the mistress who, by marrying her lover, creates a job vacancy. Her rise is glittering. Her fall sordid. God pays her out. The dead take revenge on the living. The moral order is reasserted. All this to
0: say, when Anne emerged as Anne Boleyn she wasn't just separating her keyboard identity from her singing one. She was making a statement. Hellion debuted on the 4th of July in 1982. To build buzz for their first show, they blanketed the Sunset Strip with flyers. Enough flyers to waft gothic lettering through the air when the wind blew. Then they covered the Haunted Mansion's yard in string lights and bought enough booze to drown a small army of metalheads. For the final touch, they borrowed a 10-foot-tall PA and erected it beside a makeshift stage. That Independence Day, Hellions screamed and growled across their own backyard to an audience of hundreds of people. It was the first of many so-called Hellion mega-parties. Much like The Runaways, a lot of LA bands got started at house parties. Pre-social media, this was an effective, and cheap, way to get word of mouth attention. And the house party strategy worked for Hellion. They were quickly absorbed into the LA club scene and written up in local music press. And Anne lived up her persona in the press. For instance, when asked why Hellion lost its first bass player, she told reporters he was scared of her commitment to the dark She'd also tell journalists she'd been a witch in a past life, and she'd quote Aleister Crowley during interviews. In his memoir, Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust, producer Ken Scott recalls Anne showing up to a recording session in all black lace. She made a pentagram from candles, then sat in the center. This, she insisted, was the only way to record. An unusual voice, a beautiful face, a captivating stage presence, At worst, Anne was a novelty. But at best, she was incredibly memorable. So memorable that she caught the attention of Ed Leffler, the manager of Van Halen. Coincidentally, Van Halen also started the career with house parties, and they were at their career peak when this happened. Leffler's attention wasn't easy to get, but he had a proposition for Anne. Ed Leffler, who managed Van Halen,
1: was interested in managing me. And he said, uh, you know, I I think that you can be the next Pat Benatar, the metal version of Pat Benatar. Here's what I want. And he said, I forget how much it was. I think that he was going to offer me like $1,000 a week or something like that. I'm sure it's in my diary.
0: Now, to put this offer in perspective, Leffler was offering her about $2,700 in today's money per week. So by 2019 standards, her guaranteed take home would have been just over $10,000 a month. For someone who'd been selling printer toner by phone and living in mold-ridden mansions, this was a pretty good deal. I mean, I think for most people, that's a pretty good deal. There was just this one tiny little detail of selling out her band.
1: But the deal was that I had to get fake boobs and we had to fire Ray Shank, which was, you know, the guy that I wrote songs with. This is like, this is just ridiculous because I had modeled very briefly when I was like, right, you know, after I came to LA and did the Runaways thing and no one had ever asked for me to have fake boobs or anything to do modeling. <laughs> you know, here, here it was, now I'm in the music business and in order to do, you know, to take this next step in my career, they want me to fire my guitar player and, you know, become this plastic person and I was like, well, I, uh, I couldn't do that, you know?
0: Anne was committed to her band. Unfortunately, the commitment didn't feel so mutual. Hellion was getting attention from trade publications like Kerrang! and Sounds Magazine, and their demo was topping the import charts. Despite their mounting successes, though, Anne still felt like her position in the band was temporary. She even referred to herself as Throat on demos because being the singer felt so tenuous. If Hellion could get a different singer, if they could just get a man, she was sure they'd kick her out. Then she met Ronnie James Dio at a 5K run. Fun fact, Ronnie is a very popular networking activity in Hollywood, but that's just an aside. If you're unfamiliar with Ronnie James Dio, here's all you need to know. The dude's so metal, he's rumored to have popularized the hand gesture we call Sign of the Horns that's when you put your pointer finger and your pinky finger out. He started his career as a bassist, then he fronted Richie Blackmore's band Rainbow. But he got really, really famous when he replaced Ozzy Osbourne on vocals in Black Sabbath. This was a big stylistic change for the band, but Dio was also stepping up to the mic as this elven man at a time when audiences were expecting David Lee Roth. And when he started his own band, called simply Dio, his record company tried to blackball him from releasing anything. They weren't sure how to market it, so he had to self fund Dio the band's debut. And that album, Holy Diver, has gone on to be a metal classic. So, in summary, Ronnie James Dio was the heavy metal underdog who always triumphed. And for this reason, Anne and Dio had a lot in common. They both were passionate runners, they were both instrumentalists turned vocalists, and they both had unusual singing styles. In fact, some early Hellion reviews even compare Anne's voice to Dio's. Ronnie James Dio was a natural mentor for her. Dio insisted she take her singing as seriously as she'd taken learning keyboards. Forget all her insecurities about her voice, just embrace what only she could offer as a singer. If she wanted any success, she had to hold herself to the same standards as men.
1: And you can't call yourself
0: throat anymore. You're a singer. Take pride in your craft and call yourself a singer. Write your own songs. And for God's sake, stop wearing backstage passes at gigs. You're not some groupie. You're the head of a metal band behave like the head of a metal band." Anne describes herself as indebted to Ronnie James Dio, and for good reason. His wife Wendy Dio took over managing the band, and Ronnie produced a single for them that got pretty significant radio play. He also got Hellion booked as the opener for several major bands including Whitesnake. He was very generous with opportunities and advice. But while he had a lot of wisdom to share as an outsider overcoming professional obstacles, he just couldn't anticipate the ones Anne would face as a woman. Take what happened after he told her to stop wearing backstage passes to get into her own gigs. Hellion was booked to play the Reseda Country Club if you ever hear of a california venue called the country club that's the same place it was started by two of la's biggest concert promoters and by the mid-80s its influence rivaled the whiskeys everyone from huey lewis to guns N' roses to the beastie boys played the country club in their bid for the big time that night as ann was preparing to go on stage she was approached by security
1: security guy comes up says you know You gotta get out of here. I said, no I don't, I'm I'm just, I'm saying it. Same guy isn't. You're you're not, you're not this bad. Guy grabbed his partner and they shoved me back in the tuning room and proceeded to grab boobs, grab crotch, and and I probably would have been sexually assaulted and raped had I not taken my knee into one of them and was trying to get get, uh, my pants off and after I meet this guy, it was like the cartoon, and they literally, he polled me out the back door. I had to run around, pounding at the back door, can't get in, We had to run all the way around to the front of the venue, and run through the crowd, go up on stage, and it wasn't until after a while that uh, a friend of mine says, you know, there's blood all over your face.
0: By her own account, this was probably one of the more extreme things to happen to her as a performer, but it was hardly out of the ordinary. Anne didn't put up a fight or talk about it with her bandmates. She feared they would see her as a liability or worse, drama. And she didn't want to get blacklisted by venues either. Years after getting assaulted by the country club security guard, Hellion was able to use the venue to shoot a video. They had a shoestring budget that the country club was happy to accommodate because of their long-standing relationship. In the 80s, MTV played metal videos constantly. Yehelyan was only the second female-fronted metal act to make it to their airwaves. An opportunity that might have never come had Anne fought the security guard incident harder. That's just how Anne's career was. Always trying to balance a series of losses, anticipating some bigger payoff. But the biggest payoff of all never came. Over the years, Anne watched all her peers get signed to major labels. Motley Crue, Wasp, Metallica, Megadeth. Why not Hellion? Anne thinks record companies didn't know how to market her. And this is important to note because Lita Ford makes a similar complaint about her solo career following The Runaways. And it's also part of what led Joan Jett to establish Blackheart Records and release Bad Reputation. But Joan Jett didn't cut that record alone. Her manager, Kenny Laguna, was a big help. Laguna had spent decades in pop music, and he had the network and experience to show for it. And he also had the capital. He liquidated his daughter's college fund to pay for Joan's solo debut. Anne made a similar decision to start her own record label. But she didn't have the same kinds of resources as Joan. Or as her mentor, Ronnie James Dio. All she had was herself and the odd gigs and jobs she'd worked over the years. And I'm emphasizing this because these are some of the details to consider when asking why some people make it and others don't. Anne's new label was called New Renaissance Records. It was small, but it was influential. New Renaissance never put out any full lengths because that was very expensive. But they did put out a lot of compilations. And these included some of the earliest material by bands such as Mayhem, King Cobra, and Sepultura. It's undeniable that Anne had an ear for talent. She was hardworking and innovative too. There's a lot of possible reasons why Hellion or Anne Boleyn never broke into the mainstream. But it's also worth considering that, hey, maybe there's only so much space one person can make in a world that's refusing to share it. In 1985, Anne's worst fears were confirmed. Her bandmates kicked her out of Hellion, the group she had founded and organized, the group she had poured herself into for three years The group she had introduced to Ronnie James Dio. After a minor legal spat, her ex-bandmates surrendered the name Hellion to her, and she forged on with various lineups, including one with Dawkins' ex-drummer. But she never captured the same energy as the original lineup, never followed her ambition to its wildest conclusion. Today, Anne is still playing with Hellion, but it's not the center of her life anymore. Actually, she's followed a professional path that's pretty similar to Jackie Fox's. In 2007, Ann passed the bar exam and began practicing law in California. Her focus is civil rights and labor law. Her specialty is sexual harassment cases.
1: You know, I've, I've represented a whole lot of women that have been you know, raped by their bosses and a lot of really horrible things and there's nothing that's better, you know, I I mean, not nothing that's better, I still, the the roar
0: of the crowd usually is pretty awesome too, but um, it's a pretty cool feeling to be able to, it sounds bad, but to humiliate some of these jerks. Anne has enjoyed a stable career as a lawyer, and undoubtedly she's positively impacted a lot of lives with her legal work. But was that Anne's dream? I don't want to discount what Anne has accomplished. I mean, as you've heard today, she was deeply involved in the 80s LA metal scene. Even her record label has a rich history worthy of its own podcast episode. But you're not going to find an Anne Boleyn biography. Well, not Hellion's Anne Boleyn. There isn't going to be an Anne Boleyn movie. She's never getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're probably thinking, so what? Life is unfair. Most aspiring rock stars never become rock stars. And sure, it's easy to see that these things are true. It's much harder to investigate why they're true, to look at what resources someone was working with, how they used them, the people they were encountering, how they were being treated by those people, how they responded, and how that influenced later opportunities. When I asked Anne if she's ever regretted not joining the Runaways because the Runaways would have meant having more of a legacy, this was her answer.
1: No, yeah, there's no no part of, of me. I, I just it would have been incompatible to who I am.
0: the life Anne has now isn't necessarily the one that she dreamed of or aspired to, but it's the one that makes her happy, the one that she's made the best of on her own terms. <laughs> Bad Reputation is written and produced by yours truly, Miko Cabarell. We had some very special guests on today's episode. Sheree Curry was played by Kat DeBacher, Kim Fowley was played by Scott Plant, our Defiant drummer was played by J.R. Nelson. Most of Anne Boleyn's parts were, you guessed it, from an actual interview with Anne, but we did hear a brief dramatic cameo from Jesse Roti. Ronnie James Dio was played by Lior Galil, and Hilary Mantle was voice acted by Nancy Paraskopoulos. To learn more about today's episode, check out the Bad Reputation website, badreputationpod.com. There you'll find information about our sources and bonuses like images, articles, and videos. You can find contact information for me if you've got any questions or concerns, and you can learn more about our wonderful voice actors, too. And you can find Bad Reputation on Instagram at badreputationpod. If you like this show and want more frequent episodes, please support me on Patreon. I make this show in my very limited free time because I think this history is important, and I would love to be able to share more of it. If you don't have some extra bucks, that's okay. Most of us don't. Rating and reviewing Bad Reputation on iTunes is completely free, and it really helps people find the show. Tell anyone you can about it, too. Post about it on social media. Recommend it to a friend. Convince someone in the press to write about it. Every plug for Bad Reputation goes a long way in helping more people learn about women in rock. Thank you so much for listening to Bad Reputation and I will see you next episode.